You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Okay, so for people who don't know, Ash, you live in Florida, and yes. there was a basically a hurricane there like a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of the reason I chose this movie as one of the ones to begin with. So I've lived through two hurricanes in the last couple of years. And before that, we've had about 10 years or maybe 11 years where really we didn't have any major storms, at least not in central Florida. So um, it was like the first time that I'd really dealt with it as an adult. Um, I'd always been a kid before or younger. And it was just like a totally different experience going through that when you're like trying to figure out everything, basically. And I can really relate to the anxiety of that, I guess. So yeah, so when you're a kid, someone just tells you what to do, where to go, it's all on them. But now you're responsible for your own safety and maybe the safety of others, too. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun. It like, I don't know, it's kind of like a snowstorm. (laughs) Like when you're a kid, like the same kind of a thing, you know? So anyway, Slappy, this is, I think this was your first time seeing it, though. This was my first time seeing it. I hadn't even heard of it uh, at any point. So, uh, yeah, completely blind into this one. And I specifically, after we decided on it, did not, tried to not look up anything about it. I looked up basically enough to figure out whether or not my girlfriend would want to watch it with me. Did she? (laughs) No. But but, but actually, uh, we talked about it after, and I think she is going to watch it because the thing is, uh, not to get too far into the further part of this podcast, but it's not the kind of movie that feels like it can be just spoiled, which is a good thing. Right. It's not about events. It's about mood and process and things like that. And I'm glad you mentioned that because like the number one note I have here is that this felt like a horror film most of the time, especially on your first viewing. It doesn't feel like that at all afterwards because you know what's going to happen. But it feels like a horror film. I feel like you could cut together a traditional horror movie trailer from the footage here and could sell that yeah. film that way if you wanted to. And then I thought, but what is it really? It's more like a dread film. It's all about foreboding and this thing that might happen. And just it's a horror film without the payoff in a way. Well, that's kind of the thing is like, I think dread is a good way to put it. And generally speaking, there for on my viewing, there's basically two kind of outcomes and neither one was good right like it doesn't it doesn't matter which way it goes yes. and so there's a dread either way you mean uh it's it's dreadful if he's right and it's dreadful if he's wrong but for completely different reasons yes yeah yeah well so that that leads me to another note i had way down lower actually on my list though but might as well mention it now the first time you saw this either of you were you like me perversely happy for a second when those storm sirens went off because you wanted him to be right um, well, this last time that I watched it, when I when that part came on, I was almost questioning if it, that was real or not. Like I wasn't the first time I watched it. I think I took it a lot more literally. Um, and I because I, I didn't really know anything about the film the very first time I watched it. And I really did think I think based on what I'd seen about it, that it was like a disaster film. And, and, and I kept expecting that, you know. So the first time I think I had a different idea. But this time I was like questioning if that was even if that was still a continuation of his dream or something not maybe not the same dream but that he was still dreaming oh you saw it in such a great mindset then specifically expecting <laughs> him to be right the whole time that that big moment when he thrusts open those doors underground that must have hit you in a way it probably didn't hit most other people then i'm not sure i mean do you think that's not generally the way that a lot of people would take the movie i don't know i don't think it had much of a marketing budget so i think most people were more like slappy where they just had no idea what they were getting into they, yeah. just, they just heard some buzz about it right yeah i'm trying to think of 2000 uh 2011 had a lot of the weather kind of movies because I mean, we've had a few since then like i think geostorm is in theaters now i want to say uh 20, 2012 did 2012 come out in 2012 or <laughs> well if it didn't then shame on them but yeah the geostorm's in theaters now and it won't be by the time we're done recording <laughs> <laughs> but so slappy you talk about it like a weather movie but that's what makes it great right is that it's really not about that at all it's i don't want to uh inflict my own view on this but it's clearly about mental illness on some level yeah no absolutely 
I mean, honestly, we might we might as well get into what the ending is because to me it changes the context of the entire film. I don't understand the the movie without understanding the ending. Basically, I mean, I guess we're assuming people have watched the movie. So you go throughout the the whole movie. He has the <laughs> recurring dreams, um, and then the, the entire time when I was watching the movie and we saw these recurring dreams, I was trying to prepare myself for a um, a a moment that was um, a real event, but I was expecting it to be a dream. But it's actually, I think, the reverse in the ending of what they what they did with that. Because I kept expecting, like, okay, my expectations are when something weird happens, like, it's done to this me, like, three times. It's setting now. Every time something weird, I'm thinking immediately dream. And what I was expecting the movie to do was at some point, one of those was actually going to be real. It was going to flip. And some, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, but it was actually the reverse where um, I, I – the movie makes way more sense to me in basically every meaning if the – the final scene is a dream of his. Mm, this is where I get uh, hung up a little bit. Um, I'm going to... I usually hate films that have like ambiguous endings like that, um, unless they really put in the work so that it doesn't matter, so that it really is beside the point. And I think this one does that. I think it gets to the point where it doesn't matter. I think the the ending of the film is not the storm. The ending of the film is when they look at each other and understand what they have to face together. It doesn't matter if it's a real storm anymore. It doesn't matter if the storm is a metaphor for his mental illness, which is where I come down for the record. Although I don't feel strongly about it, because again, I just don't think it matters. I think what this is actually a story about him learning that he can't do this on his own, um, and that he is actually hurting himself and his family by trying to isolate them from his problems, and that facing things together, uh, is uh, deciding to face things together, is the resolution, basically. What do you have against ambiguous endings? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, 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 you know what? I don't know. I actually don't know. I just, don't, I just don't think some people's mind just doesn't work that way, right? Like I like answers. I wanna, I want it to be rigid and logical, and I want to know how the rules of the world and all that. And it's probably to a fault. I'll absolutely admit. And I'll, I also can't help but notice that I have more tolerance for ambiguity as I get older, though, which I hope yeah. is a sign of personal growth. But it might just be I'm tired of arguing with filmmakers <laughs> <laughs> or about films. No, I think it's a good sign. Um. Pro- probably, I would think so, but. But um, but more and more, it's like I, I'm fine with it as long as a movie. Uh, when you rewatch it later, you can see how it was building to that the whole time. And in this case, I think that it definitely does. Um, it doesn't really matter too much to me, at least if it's real. It just matters that whatever they're facing, they're doing it together now. Um, because he spends the entire film just like refusing help, right? And that's like one of the hallmarks of mental illness is that. It's so hard to get people to confront it and accept help and put their pride aside. You know, there's a big pride aspect with it. So, for example, I, I started to realize this, like, literally the third time through. He doesn't, it's not just that he turns away help. Everyone notices that the first time, right? Is that the whole movie's about him turning away help. Uh, he turns away help from every support system that humanity has ever created. <laughs> he turns away help from his uh, family that he's married into. He turns away help from his friend. He turns away help from his brother, in other words, blood relatives. He turns away help from his pastor, who's like, hey, didn't see you in church. And he turns away help from the state in the form of counseling. Like, that is everything humanity's ever come up with to try to help people. And he has no time for any of it. He just brushes it all off. And his dog... His dog, they're right, I forgot about dogs. Arguably the greatest support structure mankind has ever devised. And can't even take refuge in his dog. Like, that's when you know he's far gone. Well, it was, I guess, because every, he kept doing this pattern where everything that happened to him in his dream, he was trying to isolate himself from the things in his dreams that were against him. Like his dog biting his arm and his wife yeah. at one point. And, but then, like you said, at the end, it, it kind of comes full circle. And learns that, like, my interpretation of the end, I really did interpret it to be a dream, too. I don't really think it necessarily matters, but I do think it was a dream. And I think that the the important part of the dream was basically that um, whether or not he was having this, he obviously has a, a growing mental illness. And but at least he finally has the emotional support of, like, his family, which is why they, like, recognize that there's a storm coming and the confirmation of that. Right. His daughter notices the storm first. Um, yeah. And his wife sees the oil and they're all on the same page for like basically the first time, whether it's happening in his head or not, you know. Right. So it's not just that, but like you think he spends most of the film not just turning away help, but like treating symptoms rather than fixing problems. So he try he doesn't want to go to a therapist. He wants to just take a pill and be done with it. Right. And it works for one night and then uh, the illness comes back with a vengeance. And he's scared of the dog because of the dream. So he doesn't. Uh, talk about the dream. He doesn't train the dog better. He doesn't even get rid of the dog until later. Although the fact that he does it all, I think, is a sign of growth. Uh, all he does is put a fence around it. 
like it's just such a band-aid, right? It's like I don't want to deal with this right now. I just want to <laughs> yeah. I'll put I'll put the dog away, but I won't actually make any decisions. I won't actually seek any help. Just the dog's gone. It's such a like a cheap half measure. He spends the whole film with these little half measures to try to avoid confronting this. I think you yeah. nailed something huge on the treating the symptoms rather than the cause. I think that was one of my major takeaways from the middle third, I guess, of the film, where I don't think he really even believes it's really about a storm in the first third. Because when he goes out to the storm shelter, it seems like more of an excuse for him to read about, uh, go through his library books about mental illness and dreams in private. It's not like he's really focused on clearing out the storm shelter for its own sake. But then he starts to almost buy into his own excuse and starts thinking about the storm. And then he, I think that he, because he can't be actually fully prepared for the onset of this mental illness, um, that his body is kind of intuitively kind of telling him and warning about him coming, he needs to prepare for something. And that's why he starts preparing for the storm. And I, I just, I, that's a perfect example of treating the symptoms and not the cause because he's not even treating the correct symptoms. He's imagined symptoms that he might be able to prepare for. That's a really, really good way to put it. And that's basically what projection technically is. A projection is I have a feeling and I don't know where it's coming from. So I'm going to say it's coming from here. And usually that the here is somewhere other than you. <laughs> it's someone else's problem or the problem is coming from someone else. So in this case, he knows he's anxious and you're right. He kind of starts to brush it off, right? He tries these little pat fixes and he understands right away that it's just a mental illness thing, right? He's reading about it. He doesn't start building, like you say, a big shelter in earnest. And it's like once those small fixes don't work, then he's left with only two possibilities. Either he's basically a psychic predicting a horrible event or the mental illness is so much worse than he'd feared. And he decides out of those two possibilities, which one's he going to believe, right? And he'd much rather believe that he's normal, uh, uh, mentally at least, uh, and that there's just a storm coming, right? And it's only until he's absolutely forced to confront it that he finally does. Mm-hmm thing i really liked about this movie and i think this was a great pick uh is that it's one of those movies that all of it sits together there is basically no topic that we can get into this movie that i can't i can't kind of maneuver into the topic i want to talk about anyway because it's all <laughs> really dense and connected they didn't waste time with this movie at all and think they did a great job with it because of that yeah um and we should definitely do that in just a second but i did want to kind of shout out to mark f on the forums who when i saw this film originally and talked about it because you want to talk about it it's that kind of film he put it so well when he said that jeff nichols the writer and director he'd done a few other he's done a few other films uh before and since and he said that his films feel like novels and i was like man that is that's perfect that's exactly what it feels like because it's not about visual spectacle it's not about events or plot the way movies are it doesn't have the same kind of narrative momentum as a movie normally does it has a sense of place and mood and it's kind of like a sustained character study there's a lot of little events that happen that give you a subtle clue into the nature of each character but they don't spell it out for you exactly they don't seem important the first time but when you rewatch it they do and that's exactly what a novel is like this did feel like kind of a visual novel I actually assumed it was a novel when I was I was looking it up a few days ago and and I, I just assumed that it was and I kept trying to look for the not like the novel and I'm like, where is it? <laughs> and well, it wasn't. There you go, right? Uh, that Mark knows what he's talking about. It really does though. I don't blame yeah. you. It does feel like that. Like certain sometimes you'll see a movie and you'll say, Oh, this must have been a play. Uh that's this is like yeah. that. This feels like, oh, this must have been a novel. Kinda like um uh, what was that film we saw? Or I think actually it was Lion Winter a play before it was a movie. Right, yeah, we t- that was an example of uh, one we all just assumed was a play, and I think that one was, but I I don't remember. I think it was. Um, I was gonna say I'm pretty sure that is a. I'm pretty sure that is a it play. Has to be right. It had to have been made into a play if it wasn't afterwards, because it, <laughs> it begs to be a play. Uh, and if you like Lion in the Winter, anyone listening, we have a podcast on that too, and it's one of our better ones. So check it out. Speaking of the uh, it appearing like a novel, um, the film stuck really close to the screenplay. I actually don't have very many notes on the screenplay in this one because it the film reflected the screenplay almost exactly. Uh, so like, e- every part of the dialogue, even like s- smiled inflections and kind of like seemingly random things the characters would say uh, were almost always in the screenplay. It was almost word for word. And even like the actions, like the directions, um, most of those were written in, which actually kind of brings me to kind of a broader movie question about whether or not you think people that write screenplays can just have the ability to visualize all in their head or if they're actually standing up in their living room wherever they're doing it and kind of like imagining things because he's he describes small things about like how he pats the the his daughter on the head and and like uh, where their the relationship to their hands to the objects they're holding that kind of thing which it seems to me like it would be too good 
and he'd be he'd be it'd be too small not to notice unless you're like watching yourself do it and then basically writing down what you're doing but i don't know some of the other parts seem like he wouldn't really be able to do with another person if he did like a dry read i'm sure different screenwriters have way different uh, approaches to this but it just caught my interest well, in this case, Nichols was both the writer and the director. So my guess is he wrote it knowing he would direct it and just figured, well, why don't I just quasi storyboard this while I'm writing it? You know, it might be a little different if you were writing for someone else. That's true. One thing I want to go back to a little bit uh, is something you, d- you said earlier, Slappy, about how he kind of understands from the beginning that it's probably mental illness. He only questions himself when it gets too bad to manage. And I kind of figured throughout the first half of the movie that Curtis was shrugging things off out of like pride or ignorance about how serious mental illness can be. Uh, but it turns out to be a lot more thoughtful than that. I figured it was just going to be that he's turning help away because he thinks his problems aren't really real and he just has to power through it. And, you know, there's that cliche Midwestern stoicism, you know, all that stuff. I figured it was like that. Uh, but it turns out it's the exact opposite. It's that he knows the problem is real uh, because his mother's gone through it and he's trying to protect his family from it. And by the way, speaking of Midwestern stoicism, uh, the name Curtis means courteous. And there's sort of this weird foe, like, oh, it's not your problem, you know, don't worry about it kind of thing. But what he does, and I think you'll, you'll probably agree with this, is that it's totally self-fulfilling. The seriousness of his problem makes him want to protect his family from being exposed to it, which in turn causes exactly the kind of alienation he was trying to prevent. Yeah, I completely agree with that, because he badly wants to prepare, but he doesn't actually want to face actual preparation so he, he prepares for something else to stop being afraid of the first thing, but then he's not actually managing his anxiety. So his anxiety is growing while he's still doing more and more to, 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 to try to treat something that's not true, which is the storm part. And so basically his anxiety is growing at the same rate that his preparedness that's falsely placed is growing. And so it's this horrible feedback loop. Yeah, and and he has no me- mechanism for correcting it, because the only person who it seems like can help him is his wife. She's not in any of those initial dreams, just as a person, right, who's just there with him. When she finally shows up, she's one of the threats. So he doesn't even see her as an ally at all, let alone like an ineffectual one. So, And when he finally talks to her about it, you remember she comes back out next time and she's like, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get a job. I'm going to get this job. We're going to afford this. You know, she's got a game plan. She's totally on board she, after like one fight about it because he's actually talking to her a little bit. And in the moment that she should be the most humiliated, when he basically makes a spectacle of himself in front of all those people, she's not embarrassed at all. She embraces him in front of everyone. So, like, when he gives her even a little bit to work with, she's completely on board. She becomes an ally immediately. And it's like, wow, if you'd just done this at any other point, you'd be so much further along by now. And I guess to me that, like, the weird thing about that is, I mean, maybe he wasn't sure before then that she was going to be an ally. But, I mean, this is obviously, it's his wife. So, you would think that, I guess, you know, he would know, maybe, wouldn't there be more trust there to trust her to be an ally? Like, why would you automatically assume that, you know, she would be against you? Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's where his backstory comes in a little bit, right? Uh, his mother uh, has some kind of episode, freaks out, leaves, and the dad apparently sounds like doesn't respond very well. And uh, you kind of get the impression they didn't actually say this, but it kind of felt like the brother bailed. He was a little older. I think they said he was like 17 uh, and Curtis was like 10. And you could see they have sort of an icy relationship later. So, yeah, I guess he's probably sitting there and drawing maybe all the wrong lessons uh, from his own mother's battle with mental mental illness. To kind of piggyback on what Ash is talking about, I also think it's it's telling that they actually show a pretty strong relationship in the movie. I think they did a really good job of showing that this was a strong bond. The the bond between Samantha and Curtis is actually pretty great, and they they actually don't even spend that much time on it because in the first scene of the movie, it's like you know pat the do- pat the daughter on the head, you know uh, don't pat the daughter. Blah, blah, blah. It was kind of eh, kind of rote at that point, but. Uh, one of the early parts that I really liked was one when they were talking in the bedroom of um, of their daughter. Right. And the, the fun thing is that they kind of get to talk like at a normal pitch, although she kind of whispers and he talks normal. And then they mention that where yeah. they get to actually have this moment where um, I actually looked this up. I was actually trying to find out, do deaf people sleep better? And then I did some research and apparently they basically don't really sleep better because they just become more sensitive to light and um, pressure changes in the room. So they're. They obviously can sleep through noises, but if the light changes at all, they're really sensitive to morning light and that kind of thing because they rely on it so much. That's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. I, I was, I, it was just one of those things like as soon as that happened in the movie, I basically stopped the movie right then and was like, do deaf people sleep? Better? You had to <laughs> know right away. Thing? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and and they, they pretty much don't. Like, obviously, they sleep better through noise. And I'm going to get way off, but they kind of they 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 tend to go into houses that are near train tracks because the prices of the houses are lower and it doesn't bother them. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And uh, they show like a a pretty important tense moment where, uh, you know, he was at work and then he was late 
uh, and she specifically told not to be late before, and it was kind of like a classic fight, but they actually turn it around pretty quick and in a pretty healthy way. And I really like that because that shows much more to me than a film that just shows, you know, them looking into each other's eyes like, I love you, I adore you, blah, blah, blah. Just something yeah. where they actually, they had a, a an actual tense moment where it wasn't really like, um, it wasn't either of their fault. One of them wasn't just being, you know, dumb. It wasn't like they were being petty. It was an actual thing where it's like one was trying to do one thing, one wanted another thing, and one of them kind of chose their job over their family relationship and the one's kind of spurned by that but they actually have a pretty quick turnaround and they actually heal over it and it actually shows a little bit of early strength in the relationship where i actually buy him as a more because i was kind of worried about the thing you're talking about earlier with the um midwestern kind of like stoic man yeah he he was while he was certainly that he was at least taking mental the mental parts of um of himself seriously like he wasn't just he wasn't completely cut off from his wife he actually like clearly cares about her it wasn't just like he was uh, you know i don't care about no emotions or you know, women blah 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 that kind of yeah. thing he was actually like a real person like a, a certainly masculine and kind of avoided wanting to talk about mental illness but like when he went to the therapist later he immediately was like, I'm showing this many symptoms out of the, like, I'm showing two of the five symptoms of this, and, like, I have the score of this out of this, and uh, he, after she gave him the chance to open up, he sort of did. The 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 part in the therapy where he kind of didn't, uh, he didn't do well was when he hit, thought he was going to have to do it again, because he really didn't like to, it obviously was hard for him to open up, which might be the part of the masculine thing, but he was willing to do it. But then when he when he realized he was going to have to do it again with a new therapist, he was like, oh, no, thanks. That's a really great point about that early fight. I had not somehow watching it like four times that never even occurred to me that that little micro fight they have is sort of a precursor. Yeah, to the idea that they can, uh, I'm going to say it, weather the storm together um, <laughs> if, if he just if they just work together there. Um, and there's there's some saying or some quote or some aphorism or whatever about how uh, healthy relationships are ultimately ones that can fight well. I don't know if you've ever heard that they they know how to fight which means they don't just say hurtful things, they say constructive things, they get to the root of the problem, they forgive, they move on, they incorporate, stuff like that, that the number one thing that judges how long-term and successful relationships going to be is how how they fight. And you're right, they fight well, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it. They also heal pretty quickly, too, which kind of like in a general motion towards the rest of the film, there's two ways to kind of manage fights in a relationship. There is trying to reduce the amount of, of fights in a relationship which is important as well but also it's really being able to reconcile after a fight because you will fight even if you manage a relationship perfectly uh, unless you're completely emotionally cut off from the other person you're gonna both disagree on something and it's gonna matter to both of you and being able to manage the outcome of that fight where his approach to the mental illness is more i don't want this to happen and like like you mentioned like weathering the storm like I, the thing is like i thought of that so many times because like it's it, it was like and groaned about it because he wants to he wants the mental illness to be like a storm in that it's going to be really hard but then it'll go away and that's the kind of mm. that's the kind of masculinity he wants like because yeah. he can he can do it. it's like i can tense myself up i can push through i can tough it out yeah yeah but it's never going to be done exactly and that that's the aspect that i think he's really uncomfortable with is that this is this is his new approach to life it's not just like a storm that you know you stay down there and you hope it's it's gone i mean because that's kind of what happened when the when the uh when the real storm happened he he when he kept thinking the storm was going on he's like i still feel afraid is what i'm imagining going ahead he didn't say that but like he's still afraid he still feels the the oncoming storm it's not over and so he's like no the storm outside must still be continuing, but it's not. Because I still feel worried. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, from the wife's perspective, it's this whole different thing. It's this, am I ready for this? Am I ready for spending, to spend the rest of my life potentially with someone who is maybe never going to feel normal again? Uh, who's, you know, he, she's presumably met the mother. She knows what she's in store for. And he says that to her at one point. He says, you know, you know what I come from. And that's the fact that he said that, though, means that he should have known all along that she'd be okay with it. She knew the risk, you know, when she got married. She might not be looking forward to it. She might have to brace herself, but she knew this was a possibility. But he still tries to isolate her from it. Like it's like it's this disease that's going to infect her. Actually, I was just going to say that I was I, when I was reading up on the inspiration that Jeff Nichols had partly was because I guess when he was writing this, he was it was he had just recently gotten married. It, he was in like his 
first or second year of marriage. And he was, I guess he was struck with a lot of anxiety. I think it, he said something like it was in 2008 when he wrote this. And it, so it was right around the financial crisis that we were having. And I forget exactly. I wish I'd written it down more. I can maybe guess where you're going with. There was a lot of references to money in this film. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the talk about the copay with his insurance. There's the lingering shot at the gas pump with the money sort of climbing up. And obviously there's, you know, her haggling with uh, the woman about the price of her pillow uh, with his wife at the little kind of swap meet or whatever it is. Um, And obviously all the talk of the beach house and saving up money for it and paying for the surgery and then the job stuff. And it's just all of it. There's all these little reminders that in addition to this huge problem he has, there are all these just everyday problems specifically about money and they're not being quite enough. And I think his brother says something like, you take your eye off the ball for one minute in this economy. So you're right, actually. I didn't realize he'd written it a few years before it was released. That makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, economic anxiety and just being new to marriage in general, those are kind of the two things the film are most about. Um, one thing that I really liked is that uh, she made him open the door, even though she ga- he gave her a way out, right? When um, I don't know if I would personally be strong enough in that situation to basically be like, no, I'm going to like – she wasn't really putting – I don't know. I know how to put it. It wasn't like she was really putting herself in danger because she really trusted her husband. But in some ways, you know, she's locked in a bunker with someone who's going through mental illness – but she cares and trusts that person so much that she's going to put her and her kid saying, no, you're going to have to do this because this will never end until you do. Where I think a lot of people, even in really strong marriages, grab that key, get out of there and say, you know, we'll talk about this later. Like, you know, you, you need to get help, but I need to get out of the situation. She's in a she is trapped in a horrible situation, but she can still see her way out. She's a perfect match for him. I think this is one of the best relationships I've seen in the film for a long time. No, you're right. I think most people would do that. And I wouldn't even look down on them for it because you're right. At that moment, you're thinking about what is he capable of, you know, and, and my, my kid is here. Maybe my kid is scared. Maybe this is going to traumatize my kid for the rest of their lives even. Um, so you're right, but she does the really tough thing, the kind of tough love thing, right? Which is I'm going to give him not what he wants, but what he needs, which is not always the same thing. I'm not, I'm not going to do what he's asking me to do because it's not actually good for him. I'm going to call him out sort of. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Right. And the other thing that struck me too, is that like, even though there were those issues, Curtis, he like actually had a pretty, at least in the beginning in the film, he had like his crap together. I mean, he had like a loving family, a loving wife. He has like a good steady job. He's obviously able to afford to take care of his daughter's surgery with his health benefits that he has. You know, he pretty much, you know, they even were taught there was like that whole part in the beginning of the movie where they were talking about going to a beach house and they were, you know, going to be able to afford that. And so it kind of, I think it was kind of where he was going with it. Um, the director, because he was saying how when he was dealing with the first years of his marriage and the anxiety that he had, even though he knew that things for him were going really well because he had just had recent success um, with his first, the movie that he made before this one. Um, Shotgun stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also with Michael Shannon. Right. That's right. So I thought that was kind of interesting. He was talking about how there was one scene in specifically that was written because of him and his wife, the way the way that they would fight. And it was the scene where um, he wakes up after one of his dreams and he's urinated the bed and she comes in and she's kind of like she's trying to come over and he's like, no, please go away. Stop. And like the way that they react to each other and stuff. And I thought that was interesting because that was like one of the scenes that really the not so much the actual circumstance, but the way that they interacted did feel very realistic to like, you know, that sort of thing in a marriage. <laughs> I have a guess as to which line probably did that the most. It was probably the same one with me. It's where she says, I'm sorry you're feeling bad, but don't snap at me or something like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Don't take it out on me. That kind of thing. Like she understood. She's saying, I get why you're a little sensitive here, but you're aiming it at the wrong place. And that's, of course, ties right back into the theme of the film. Right. He's got he's having problems, but he's kind of taking it out on her rather than drawing support from her. Mm -hmm. I also had a line from the movie that like reminded me like this basically comes up every time I fight with my girlfriend. And that is that I scream, there's a storm coming and you're not prepared. (laughs) (laughs) And you flip over the nearest table. Right. (laughs) Oh, okay. So I, I normally hate this. And one of the reasons all these podcasts end up being about like thematic elements and stuff is because I think there's a billion podcasts online that are just people saying, I like this. I didn't like that. And just subjective opinions everywhere that like, who cares? Right. Everyone's got their own, but I'm going to make an exception to talk about Michael Shannon's acting in that scene where he flips out because it is amazing. It is incredible. The look in his eyes when he says there's a storm coming and his eyes bulge out of his head and 
I granted it's probably got a little to do with the contrast because he spends all film just holding it in and then it just explodes, which by the way means it was a bad idea to hold it in, probably because it's coming out eventually. But it was just it was just tremendous. Yeah, that was. I mean, he was like the perfect he was the perfect actor for this part. I don't think I've ever seen a movie, in my opinion, that has really captured the the feel of anxiety, the really, you know, how it is for someone that has anxiety issues. I think you're right, and I'm glad you said that because what I kept thinking about is and this is something that comes up uh, at least goes through my head a lot during a, movies like this kind of like more emotional movies is that this is one of the better examples of film as humanity's greatest empathy machine it, this helps you understand mental illness because it seems like the kind of thing where if you don't have it you really can't understand it and that's probably true even with anyone explaining it to you or any sort of depiction of it but maybe this kind of thing gets us just a little bit closer because we can literally see what he thinks he's seeing and they can use things like music and lighting and framing to create a sense of dread and create a sense of foreboding and fear that has no specific source you know and that's what people with anxiety so often describe it as they basically say like i don't know why i feel anxious it's not this is right it's not that guy over there's looking at me weird or that dog over there's barking loudly or whatever i feel anxious for absolutely no reason sometimes and in a film, you can do that. You have this little strain of music underneath, right? Or you have a constrained camera view, so you can't see in the peripheral very much, so you don't know if something's going to sideswipe you or whatever. Or just the lighting's dark and you can't see. And you feel uneasy as an audience member for reasons you can't actually point to or explain. So the movie's sort of basically inviting you to live like a paranoid schizophrenic for a couple of hours. <laughs> and if, 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 if that's even a little bit what it's like, I wouldn't make it a day. That was just two hours and I'm exhausted watching it. Yeah. And I think this is like a really great argument for what film can be, that it can put you in someone else's shoes so well. And I think it works particularly well for this type of mental illness. Yeah. I was going to say, I think one of my favorite metaphors for anxiety is like in a video game when you're in the boss level and all of a sudden the boss music starts and you're like <laughs> for the boss, but it never, he never appears. It's just, you just keep looking and that music like represents that feeling that just won't go away. And I kind of feel like the best um, representative on the screen was when Michael Shannon kept hearing thunder when there was no clouds. Wow. That, w what a way to put it in a sentence, right? Thunder with no clouds. Like there it is in one sentence. Yeah, that's that's really well put. I completely agree with uh, Shahan being a great choice after kind of piggybacking on you and Asher saying where a lot of the and this is kind of a classic thing to say about a great acting performance. A lot of his acting had to be kind of silent and reactions on his face like when he was seeing the lightning storm that really wasn't confirmed one way or the other whether or not that specific lightning storm was a hallucination or not probably was because nobody else on the freeway was really stopping and looking but he was like is anyone seeing this looks back towards uh you know his wife and then could go talk to her and mm -hmm. kind of ask her to confirm it but he does not want to know the answer well right he says does anyone else seeing this and he says it to his two family members who are asleep because he knows they won't answer it's like he doesn't you're right he's like he doesn't want the answer right because he could go get it he could immediately go and ask her yes is there lightning right there right now but he doesn't want to confirm it basically it's he's at war with his intuition and his intuition is badly trying to tell him that there, you know, is a storm coming. But he really, really doesn't want to acknowledge it because not only because of his own personal, like, you know, hell that it will bring, but because he really doesn't want to leave his family. And it might mean that he should leave his family because he doesn't want to get down to the thought process that is they'd be better off without me because he knows once he starts that thought process, it's over. Which brings me to the kind of going off of what, um, uh, well, I'm going to jump back real quick. Something Ash said that triggered a thought in me just now was uh, when she's talking about them setting up what a good life he had. It's 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 more also than that. He didn't just have a good life. A lot of the times when movies show great lives and stuff like that, they just show a life without problems. Hmm. But this movie showed a life where he was managing the challenges in his life. Like you were like you mentioned before about like he had good health insurance for his deaf daughter. He had problems in his life, but he was able to deal with all of them. It wasn't showing someone who has never had a problem before in their life. Now this is the first problem they've ever come across. And this is like shocking to them. Right. It's yeah. that this is a challenge beyond anything that this guy's experienced, even though he's used to dealing with challenges. This isn't new to him and he's still not prepared for it. That's that's really well put. And I want to go back to and emphasize what you said about. Michael Shannon's acting and how much he just has to react to things that aren't there. I'm sure that's just hard in general, but there's uh, something I heard once from uh, Michael McKean, um, and he was talking about Better Call Saul, which also deals with mental illness uh, to a degree. His character has uh, some mental illness issues there. And he was saying that if you're an actor and they tell you that you're supposed to play someone who thinks they see unicorns, 
you just have to play someone who sees unicorns. You know, you don't make that distinction. So <laughs> Michael Shannon is not actually playing someone who thinks he might see lightning. He's just playing someone who sees lightning, and he reacts very believably to it. That's interesting. Yeah, I want to ask if you guys think there's anything to the title. Because Take Shelter, it's a weird title. It's Take Shelter. It's not Make Shelter. Although that's what he does the whole movie, right? He's literally trying to make <laughs> his own shelter, right? And the first thing I think of is Take Refuge. You hear that phrase a lot. And you always hear it in reference to responding to some hardship by valuing something else you have. Like, it's never, take refuge, uh, this is going to stop. It's always, take refuge in, in this good stuff, away from the bad stuff that you have. And that's exactly what he's supposed to be doing here. He's supposed to be taking refuge from his mental illness in the comfort of his loved ones. And, it's, and once I thought of that, I thought, maybe there is something there because it is a really weird title when you think about it. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Cause to, the, the thing that comes to me when I hear take shelter is as it's something that someone else tells to another person. It's something that to me, Ooh. at least it's, oh, it's what you, you might hit you on yell. it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's what you yell to like the, a sh- I'm thinking of a ship, but that's not what they would really say. <laughs> but like uh, take shelter would be like what you, uh, I guess like a Marine Corps might say to each other if there's bombs coming down. Right. Mm. It's what one person trying to spreads out to everybody else as a warning and so that's the only association i haven't i hadn't really thought about the title that much but that was my only association association going in is it's something that other people scream out to other people so my knee-jerk reaction is it's kind of what uh he's telling his family and in some ways taking shelter he might he changed this maybe it's because he changed the interpretation from taking shelter from um what his mom did was taking shelter was she left because you're going to take shelter whether you want to or not, because I'm leaving. Um, and this take shelter is like a, we need to be prepared, and I'm warning you guys that this is coming. Uh, and he really doesn't want to do that throughout the movie. Yeah, I think your answer's better. That's a really good one, yeah. <laughs> I'm really annoyed, by the way, that I thought about this so much, and he's like, you know, it just occurs to me that you say that. Here's a much better answer that came off the top of my head. Well done, though. Well done. I do want to talk a little bit more about the symbolism, too, because we're talking about taking shelter, and again, making shelter in a literal hole. Maybe a little too on the nose. He's First of all, his job is digging, so he just does more digging. It's what he knows. But the metaphor there, digging a hole as a metaphor for turning inward rather than outward. I wish I had thought of that. That's, <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> it kind of ties into what Slappy was saying about that isolation where he just wants to read the books there originally. But that's why it feels like a novel, right? There's all these things in it that just seem like events that are largely unconnected to the plot. And you realize they're actually almost everything that happens reinforces the theme somehow. Yeah, I was going to jump on and say that when we're talking about Miss Metaphors in general, I just want to have like a quick conversation about what a great metaphor storms are for mental illness, how many aspects of storms uh, fit into the idea of mental illness. They're kind of vague, but devastating. You know, mm-hmm. they're, you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. They're too large. They're outside of your control. It's, uh, it's not a specific fear, right? It's that generalized fear. Um, I mean, that generalized fear of being anxiety, because that's kind of what the movie's about. Uh, and you can't be prepared for every outcome. They're unpredictable. Exactly right. Uh, what I liked about this, as far as mental illness being also a personal storm, is everything else kind of stays the same with a storm. I didn't really think about this before this movie, even though it's not directly related. Whether it, the people are all there, um, the buildings, the physical areas all there. So like thinking like of a rainstorm and thunder that only you are present for, well, everyone else is fine, is a it's a really good metaphor for mental illness. Mm-hmm. Every No one else is experiencing this environmental effect that you are being completely blown over by. The first thing that pops in my head when you say that is the old cartoon thing where the rain cloud follows the one person around. Um, so people <laughs> in all yeah. contexts used it. And I, 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 I can't find like an objective way of demonstrating this, but I'm sure I've heard uh, the phrase dark cloud used to describe mental illness just countless countless times uh one other way that storms like mental illness uh no two are exactly alike mm-hmm. yeah and and even though because like that oh that's actually a great one because uh forecasters right hurricanes coming and they're like all right great hurricanes we know all about hurricanes hundreds of hurricanes have happened we know about them but you still don't know even if you know what kind of it seems the movie doesn't really answer about what specifically is mental illness is. it's probably some sort of anxiety disorder but and it might be schizophrenia but it's kind of mixed with other things but the the movie does show that it's not the same schizophrenia as uh, his mom his mom had the uh, the conspiracy people are out to get her kind of uh, thing so it's it's manifesting in a different way for him even though it's probably the same i would imagine it's the same sort of mental change but because the environment of the brain 
his brain is so different from hers is manifesting in a completely different way. So I, I think that's a very apt point that it's a it's even if you know thunderstorms coming, well, I don't know what that means. What what is that? It could be high winds, low winds, rain, whatever. Yeah, each storm has its own personality, and maybe that's why we give them names. Oh yeah, uh, I didn't even think about like the Hurricane Curtis or something. Hurricane Curtis, alternate <laughs> title for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That, okay, so that actually reminds me like of a really that would be horrible and cheesy. Um, yeah, 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 uh, that would be terrible. Was that? Um, so I really like the. Mu- uh, this is actually getting to a probably different conversation because I'm gonna start talking about the music, which was um, pretty pretty uh, mild. Like they they specifically didn't use the music too much, except for the two biggest scenes when he's pushing the. Um, they the doors saved open. it. They saved it, and there was so much more payoff because of it, right? Exactly. Uh, and so the, the pushing the doors open and then the very final scene. Right. And they, and they basically they really were holding back on the music. It was other than that, the music was kind of like that kind of popular these days, like light ambient touches where it'd be very small electronics and then maybe like never anything overwhelming except for the big moments, uh, except the final the final scene uh, after like uh, just a just a couple seconds of the ambient music continues. Um, I maybe, maybe you guys like this song. I hated the outro song, hated it with a passion. I thought it was corny. And I was like, why is this here? I can tell you, I know exactly why. Did you already look it up? Yeah, I did. I did. So (laughs) I was trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out why is this here? This doesn't make any sense. This was so smart. This music, this movie is so uh, so well thought there's no way there's no way this like got past them about why this music is here and so i was like i was waiting with like hate to go see whatever like who wrote this song right and so the final <laughs> song comes on and it says like oh i can't remember it's like brian nichols it was someone with the last name and immediately i was like that's his brother yeah it brother. was this it was <laughs> it was so all this emotional support system with your family thing we were talking about we're just saying draw the line at songs and movies. You don't need to hire your brother's <laughs> band for them. That's everything else is really important and yeah, 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 yada, yada, but just don't just draw the line there. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I had no other way to work that in. No, no, exactly. It's like, uh, the, the rest of the music was great. And if, if the rest of the music wasn't so well used and well paced, I wouldn't have noticed it probably. I'd be like, okay, they, they put kind of weird songs in the, the thing is like, that was the kind of song that, and then kind of get into title stuff, but sometimes there's the second title song because the, the titles are so long. That to me felt like it wouldn't be out of place as a second title song. The yes. only problem is that the the ending has to sit with you for a bit, and it really bothered me that not only would a song come on, but a song with lyrics, and then not only a song with lyrics, but a song with insipid lyrics comes in and was <laughs> poisoning my brain. And I was really mad that it was like that I was in this prime vulnerable state where I was like just trying to process what was going on because you're thinking about all the rest of the movie at that point. It ends abruptly too, this, yeah. Exactly, and then exactly, then it comes on and this guy's talking to me while I'm trying to do this and I just <laughs> want him to shut up. And so then I waited and then I was I was very, I was pretty mad at, uh, at the director for, for that. I, I think he should have put, I get it, it's his brother, you know, but he needed to put another minute of space or something because it was, it was too quick. I, I agree with that. Oh, well, so I'm, you brought up the music. You're always big on sound. You, you're you not a fan of like, sound in the 70s. You feel like, you know, maybe it's because you like music so much. So you're yeah. sort of an, an audiophile a little bit here. You don't like 70s music? Is that what you said? No, 70s sound. So I like oh, 70s music, but like the, the sound in movies. So we talked about this before. Like in um, in Line Winter, the sound design was terrible, but the shots were great. Like it was, it was one of the movies that really caused me to realize, I, and we talked about this in the podcast, was that the visual the, the visual technology outpaced the, the the sound capture technology at the time uh, because the, they had the sound of sword fighting and it was tinny it sounded <laughs> horrible it didn't sound like a real fight like really sound designs come really far in um, in movies like sometimes like there's they probably gone a little too far where the sounds are a little bit too like full for what they actually are but they were just really not full enough at the time where this movie I'm probably going to go on and talk about it well, yeah, I was going to say, one, um, one of the reasons I mentioned the sound is because uh, I heard in the director's commentary that they actually didn't do any ADR. They didn't do any dubbing after the fact. All the actual dialogue was record, recorded on the day at the moment, which I think is pretty rare, actually, especially uh, with all the ambient noise they had out there. Um, maybe that lends to it a little bit, but the sound design in general, I thought, was really strong, and maybe that's why. Well, this was kind of going back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago, and we were talking about the, the just the dreams and the storms as a metaphor and everything. I feel like part of the reason that I related so much to this movie was because I have, I've had recurring dreams since I was very, very small of tornadoes, especially storms in general, but especially tornadoes. And they're always, they've always been like really scary for me. And 
maybe in the last five years or so, I haven't really had them as much as I, and that's, which just so weird because I've had them for like 30 years and then all of a sudden it was just like, it stopped. And when I've looked up like, you know, what, what it means to see tornadoes in your dream, it's always been basically like if, if you're dreaming about tornadoes, it means that you feel like you don't have control in your waking life and stuff like that. So I just, I guess that was part of the reason why this movie, I felt like it was just very realistic because um, I can really relate to that feeling of like doom or whatever. <laughs> and also just the the storm metaphor and the tornado metaphor. So storms as a metaphor for chaos, I guess then. Yeah, not feeling like you're in control. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention is uh, the guy who plays his brother uh, is a guy named Ray McKinnon. He is also a writer and a director. And he had a show on, I think it was Sundance, um, the Sundance Channel, which is a thing, if you didn't know. That's a real thing. He has a show called Rectify that ended last year. And I can't think of any TV show that reminds me of this movie and vice versa more than that show. It's actually about a guy who you will absolutely see Curtis in. He gets off death row after about 20 years. And it's about how he readjusts into society. And it's not really about mental illness, but there's there's a lot of things he's confronting. And the mood and the vibe is the same. Um, and I would just highly recommend it. If anyone liked this movie, go see Rectify. I've heard of it because I've I've seen it at the top of a ton of critics lists. And so it's always been one of those things that I've kept in the back of my mind. And also, top of my top of my critic list over several seasons, like it was not just like a particularly great season of it. Kind of like how Leftovers is all of a sudden appearing on a bunch of critics lists after its third season. Didn't appear on anything, basically, for its first two. And then, But Rectify has consistently been up there, kind of like the Americans. Um, but I have not seen it. Yeah, if you if you like me, I, maybe this doesn't describe you, but I find that, that Midwestern Stoicism thing I mentioned, I can find it, uh, when it's done well by a really good actor, I find it very magnetic even though it's like anti-charismatic i find it hard not to watch if you like that sort of thing you will absolutely like rectify yeah all right cool so um and this is more of like a discussion because i i this is more of i didn't actually come away with anything that i could really grasp onto in this one was uh, was if there was any sort of symbolic difference between um the hallucinations and the dreams or if they were just the continuation of the same thing whether or not like the the mixture of crows or birds that he would kind of see or the hallucinations of thunder, whether or not those carry any sort of different meaning than the actual dreams. I, I wasn't sure if, if you guys saw anything because I was looking for it and I couldn't think of much. Well, uh, so there is um, on the DVD, there's like just literally just two deleted scenes, like just two. And one of them is another scene with uh, the first counselor. He's talking to the woman and they talk a little bit and she actually makes a really good point that I was just like really satisfied by because she points out that his behaviors are mutually exclusive. He's simultaneously going to counseling, which implies that he knows the storm isn't real, but he's also continuing to build the shelter, which implies that it is. And she's like, which is it, buddy? Um, and he sort of uses it, uses that as an excuse to talk about like his sort of life philosophy. And she's, and she, at first she thinks he's talking sort of like about God. Like she's like, do you believe in God? No. And he's like, I'm not saying that either way. And he sort of describes his life philosophy as being something about like natural order. And the natural order of things, uh, the order of the world and nature. And so, I don't know, that's like very tenuously connected, I guess, to the birds falling out of the sky. Uh, but that ultimately got cut. And it's good because he, it's way too much like exposition, like him just describing what he thinks about the world. It doesn't really fit at all. Uh, but yeah, maybe, no kidding. Yeah, like maybe it was part of that, um, sort of. You might be able to find it on YouTube. You should probably give it a try. Uh, but all that occurred to me was just, well, birds falling out of the sky is kind of weirdly biblical plague, sort of. I don't know. I kind of felt the same way about the oily water. Like, that was a biblical plague, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think they might all be connected, but yeah. I wonder if it's one of those things where you can't actually explain the logical connection, because they're not technically biblical plagues or anything. They just feel like them, I guess. They're just yeah. epic in scope, I guess. I think to me, it, like especially the oily water, it's just not the way things are supposed to be, something unnatural or, or like almost a sense that you can't trust the universe or, mm. you know... Yeah. I'm not sure if the character necessarily is um, even really religious, but I mean, at the, at the very least, he seemed like he was spiritually inclined, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so I, that's a good that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a really good way to put it. It's just something's off, right? Like birds falling out of the sky, water and oil aren't supposed to mix, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good way to put it. It's like, it's just a way to make you uneasy, maybe. Yeah, no, actually, I think that is actually a great way because now I'm trying to come around on that where it's the most basic relationship to the world is falling apart, right? Like the, the fundamental thing that you should be able to trust is your senses. And now that those are betraying him, it's kind of like nature 
not working right. It's the laws of nature not working is kind of as as harrowing as your senses not working. It's the thing. It's the the dependable thing that you trust for everything. If the universe isn't obeying its own laws, um, if nature isn't obeying its laws, there's like everything's up for grabs. You don't trust anything. Same thing with your senses. If your senses are betraying you, everything's up for grabs. And so I hadn't had that thought before, but I think that what Ash was saying that that makes sense to me, that kind of connection where the hallucinations are a little bit step beyond because they're actually going to complete that kind of idea, the analogy between uh, sensory um, false senses and then that being as, as bad on an individual scale as nature, just no longer obeying its own uh, concepts. Well, actually, geez, I didn't even occur to me that kind of ties into the daughter a little bit. Like so often she has to trust them, right? She can't hear things. She's out in the street. He's running towards her. Like if there's a car coming, you won't know. We have to sort of do this for you. You have to rely on us to some degree. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing with him. He can't even trust his senses. That's a good point. I was really expecting something to um, – I, I was kind of like both hoping it would happen and hoping it wouldn't happen. Um, that something specific was going to be about the daughter's deafness, but really you could you could you could put a lot of different things in for the deafness because he hears things that aren't there. She doesn't hear things that are there. Kind of a thing. I was I was wondering if that exact kind of scenario was going to occur, um, but it didn't really. It was just it was just kind of funny, which is fine. Like it, you should absolutely include more people in situations where you're not just always tensed up like if there's a blind character, if it's a deaf character, just like always be like, what's going to happen with this person specifically? Where they're that that character's uh, uh, that character's um, I don't know uh, illness or something is going to specifically come up, where it's just like no, that's just a person and they they're basically just that. Like it didn't really matter. It was just one of the many things that a daughter might need uh, healthcare for. You're just, so the- you thought it was going to be like the end of Signs or something, not to get too spoilery. Although kind of feels yes. like feel, by the way, feels like Signs a lot. Uh, at various yeah. points. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, no, I was expecting that. I, th- I think you're right. I think it's just, it, it fits into the healthcare thing. It, it, it creates a situation where him losing his job has more emotional import. Um, and yeah, it does create some nice kind of parallels about, you know, trust and dependence and things like that. Yeah. This almost goes without saying uh, that water was such a prevalent metaphor. Oh my God. Uh, oh, oh no, did I just trigger <laughs> two pages worth of notes? Oh God, there's no going back now. Um, no, no, it's just, it's just every movie. Every movie, water. Every movie, water. And, oh my God, was there anyone named Alice? <laughs> no, I think. I think we avoided that. We didn't have enough characters for an Alice this time, but. Was this a Christmas movie? Is this a Christmas movie? Uh, God, no. So, right, so yeah, there's the rain and the, the oil. There's a whole thing early on about uh, the water wash, washes off the dirt from his job. And then he says he could use a shower and he doesn't get one, but it rains on him on their way back. So the rain cleans him off anyway. Uh, he goes to his mother's and asks for a glass of water, which he gets by himself, by the way. How weird is it to go to someone's place and they don't offer that to you or offer? You know what I mean? Uh, it's weird to do it yourself. He wakes up from his nightmare soaked in sweat, then in urine. All that stuff. Like, it's just... It, I almost didn't even bother to mention it because it's everywhere, right? I, I, there was water in it, sure. <laughs> there was water. I, like, at this point, like, because, like, every... Uh, it just It's just funny to me because I never noticed the water stuff as much. But I'm just, like, now it's flooding back to me about all the stuff you said about Dark City and water. Uh, you, the Gattaca and its infinity pool versus ocean. You just, I think you, you like water. Like, you're not, you're not wrong. And I just have nothing to add to it. I just never noticed water as no, much. No, you added to it by saying it all came flooding back to you just now. That was your big contribution. Oh Did you even realize you'd done it? No, stop recognizing See, see it's, it's everywhere so much that you're doing it without trying now. Wild them in the end. You got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end. And you've got a hit.